Coming up on the show this week, we discuss the associate members of the ICC putting their hand up for global tournaments and chat again to Mark Stafford to discuss his role in the governing body, among other things. But first, a shout out to our Emerging Cricket patrons who help us do what we do. If you're passionate about cricket in the associate world and beyond, you can help us grow from as little as $2 a month by becoming an Emerging Cricket patron. A huge shout out to our latest patron, Kazi Rahman. Thank you so much for joining the EC movement. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Emerging Cricket. As always, Nick Skinner and Tim Cutler join me for this one. Enjoy yet another EC pod. Hello and welcome again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick. I'm here with the usual crew. First, Nick Skinner. Nick, how's things? I'm all right. Keeping busy. Um, You ever not all right? I don't believe you've ever said not all right. What would (laughs) (laughs) you're in lockdown? It's freezing cold. Just I'm all right. Yeah, got to got to take things as they come, Tim. (laughs) I mean, being on the podcast just makes me all right. Good say. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, in lockdown, although I had I had work today, first shift of the week, uh, only shift of the week, <laughs> doing uh, significantly less trade than uh, than usual, obviously, with most people staying home. Um, but that means more time for emerging cricket work, so not not complaining. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good for you, but it's 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 good for us. So silver lining, Nicholas. Yeah, Tim. I understand you've just come from a Bislama lesson before jumping on the pod tonight. Can you give us some of your best work? And also, how is how's things over there? Well, <laughs> let me let me try and uh, say something first, and then let's see how we go. Nembog um, me Tim, me one CEO, low Vanuatu cricket, me work Independence Park, me come Long Villa, two months, no more. A huge, huge fan of that. You're a natural. <laughs> Um, my notes, like looking at them now, it's a collection of different uh, sounds and words. And yeah, it's, I'm 90 minutes in, and it's it's good to put some sort of structure in the things that I've been hearing yelled and pointed at me. No, no, it was uh, it, it's good. I did feel kind of proud that I was in a room of Australians, Australians and Koreans mainly, and I've been there two months, and there were people in there that had been there five years, and they were just taking their first lessons. So um, in that case, I feel good, but there's a uh, lots of little tweaks to learn, and I'm I'm, I'm just nervous about the the French pronunciations to to a lot of these words, and I <laughs> I do not uh, I can't roll my R's. Um, so that'll be it may come out a little bit a little bit Aussie, mate. But um, look, I'll I'll do my best, as they say. Threat. Threat. What, what's that mean, Tim? That's straight on. That's great. I'm happy. It's good. That's a good one. Yeah. So that's uh, that'll be your your no worries or good mate. I like it. I remember being over there. It's a fascinating concept, the language. Uh, anyone who hasn't sort of read up on it before, I implore you to. But I remember being over there and understanding bits and pieces, sort of getting somewhat of an idea of what people were saying, but definitely not enough to, to be anywhere near, well, your level after 90 minutes of tuition, Tim, which is... <laughs> don't don't talk me up. I, I've been practicing those lines for another 90 minutes after I got home. But uh, yeah, you're right. And like any language, despite it being based on a lot of English words, you hear it being spoken by people who speak it, and it just all sounds like one one big long sentence. So that, that'll be... Um, <laughs> I should know this in Bishlamba, but it'd be like, can you just slow down, please? <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm learning. I'm learning. 
But like anyway, I think everyone appreciates when you try. And um, yeah, and it's interesting that the, the, how it really simplifies everything about it. For example, to say if you, you know, I'm driving my car to school, you break it down to uh, me wrong long truck saying I'm driving the truck and then he come long school, the truck is going to the school. <laughs> so you, you say, you're not saying I'm driving the truck to school, it's you're kind of breaking it right down to, to the elements of what's happening. Because of course this is a language basically created so so you could communicate across languages so very descriptive and very fluid as well what the teacher was telling us today you could if you were fluent in bishlama and you left in 2021 and you came back in 2025 and you spoke to say people in port Vila, they would know that you left this year because the sayings and the way you're saying them would have been of that time oh wow so it it, it has a lifetime to it that's really interesting yeah so at the moment there's a lot more english words in it than, than used to be of mm. course Vanuatu being a former joint british french colony pre-1980 and there would have been a lot more french i dare say but now with a lot more australian influence it's a lot more english words but there's a growing chinese population in, in vanuatu so that was what the teacher said who knows you know in 25 years time it could uh, it could have chinese words in there as well so no very interesting it's, it's great to well try and throw myself into it ask me in nine weeks time <laughs> if i'm <laughs> Look, after the last week I've had anyway, I think I'm losing even more here and even more grey after watching customs unpack every one of my boxes and unwrap every one of my worldly possessions <laughs> at at the Vanuatu Cricket Ground on Wednesday. It was an interesting day with that all going on. Sun was out, so getting sunburnt. So, of course, that was a perfect day to wear long pants and a long sleeve shirt. So sweat sweated through that. And then it rained. And there's nothing better than a, a storm coming in when all your worldly possessions are strewn across the grass where the <laughs> customs officials look. And, and I was still dropping the customs officials back to the port. So thankfully, the master of kit, as he is now, Jamal Vera, anyone wants to have a look at his uh, Twitter account, a very cheesy grin and a flowery shirt holding up some of Peter Duffy's, well, one of Peter Duffy's bats. But uh, he was sorting out all the kit that we've just recently ordered as well. And I think he was screaming at everyone to pick up all my, you know, because I've got like a you know freedom bed that's in pieces and wood bedside tables all, all out there and everybody running it was kind of the 12th man look at him running for cover <laughs> you know they're running for cover though they're running for cover carrying my my worldly possessions so they're all in a container now that only has three leaks so <laughs> <laughs> i know this this really and we do have a guest this week so i apologize to everyone who's putting up with uh, my, my stories of vanuatu and so, uh, the week started really well the mighty north of Fate bush pigs upset <laughs> To Faya Sandalwood's side boasting four national team players, and that was great. Mark Stafford was telling me that's the first time he's seen the Pigs win a, well, it was a Division Two trophy, but win a trophy since the mid '80s. And he pointed out he was part of the team at that that time, so uh, <laughs> that was good. But the rest of it, the, it's been a been a bumpy week. Now, speaking of bumpy, Daniel, oh, yes. I, I hear you're learning to drive a manual. Oh, look out! How's that going? Yeah, so. <laughs> Good news is I bought a car. Bad news, it's a manual vehicle and I need to learn. Now, long-term listeners of the pod would have probably heard of my trials and tribulations with my Toyota Corolla. I've... <laughs> They've come on a journey, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> they have come on a journey. A lot of breakdowns, a lot of replacement parts. You're a proper fan if you remember that story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There'd only be a handful out there, but you guys are the you know our day ones. So purchased the car on Saturday did a little bit of learning with my housemate Caleb who can drive a, a manual he 
owns a, a ute so did some driving with with him some very basics obviously the relationship between the clutch and and the other two pedals and then as a house due to lockdown we can't venture too far but the greater sydney area is quite a big place so we're able to go to the blue mountains we're going to go on a trek and we did this walk through the through the national park did the what's called the ruined castle which is like this uh kind of this rock face in the middle of the national park you can climb up to the top and whatnot and we go to drive home and we're like you know what bez you can start driving the car and, and, and get us out of here so i thought you know this is a good challenge good way to kind of practice anyway i managed to get us maybe two or three kilometers up the road and then we came to a stop and realized that i was on a hill <laughs> and anyone who's driven a manual car will know that hill starts are quite difficult especially for someone who is just learning how to do them so we were on a main road but only one lane going each way and uh i managed not to get out of that intersection on about three or four attempts stalling the vehicle every single time uh, putting the hazard lights on to wave the people around me. They must have thought I'd broken down. I hadn't. I was just really bad at driving a car. And I swore and stropped around a little bit in frustration because I thought I was a little bit better. And then I realized how sort of hard it was as we were all driving home together. So a learning curve for me to, to go around. And the weekends will be spent with me covering emerging cricket, but also learning how to drive a manual vehicle. So <laughs> look, it's, it's, it's going to be a bumpy ride in many senses of the uh, of the word but looking forward to learning and i think it'll be quite enjoyable down the track and and a good skill to know especially in case of, of an emergency and stuff like that so is this is this like those people who get like a leg amputation and then they need to relearn how to walk with the prosthetic maybe but i, I drove down to the shop with my other car that i will be trying to sell at some point when i sort of master this whole manual thing and i thought it was cheating driving this automatic it's just basically glorified steering down down the road and, and an accelerator so yeah it's going to take a little while to get used to do we ask the obvious question as to why you've bought this car before you sold the other one Basically because I could. I was always trying to sell the car, but I didn't want to be in a spot where I didn't have a car at all. So we saw a good deal last week and we basically jumped at the chance um, when we could. And then, yeah, eventually we'll we'll, we'll sell the old uh, Toyota, probably for for someone who will, you know, probably someone's first car, realistically. They'll, they'll enjoy it, but I don't know how many more years I'll get out of it. Whoever buys the car, I hope they don't listen to this. It's a great car. <laughs> Well, it has a brand new engine, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, but... It's got a lot, lot of brand new bits. <laughs> every every other part of the car is the problem, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would be very interesting to see how much longer that car can go. But anyway, let's talk some international emerging cricket, finally. <laughs> I think we should talk about the bidding process that went on, well... At least we saw it in the public eye this week. A number of the game's emerging markets have put forward plans to host global events as the ICC maps out a a schedule from 2024 to 2031. Uh, We saw six associate members plus a new full member in Ireland submitting preliminary technical proposals to the game's governing body to host various tournaments throughout that cycle. Two men's cricket World Cups, four men's T20 World Cups and two champions trophies up for selection. few things outside that that are determined by another management team which we won't get into but pretty fascinating who has put their hand up in regards to all this one notable exclusion was the netherlands and we might get into that in a moment but looking at the countries that did submit selection processes or, or bids for tournaments malaysia namibia oman scotland 
UAE and the USA on top of Ireland. And looking at the tournaments that might be up for selection, I think there's a very good chance that a lot of these associate members will be teaming up with some full member counterparts in order to host these competitions, probably every single one of them. And we could probably speculate at a couple of potential ones here as we look ahead into the future. But Nick, it's a bold and ambitious plan. We don't know how many of, of these associate members will get a chance to host the event, but it's good to see that the initiative is being taken by these associate members in order to try and host some uh, international global events. Yeah, I think um, I think it's good for the game, obviously, to have more countries hosting and, and it'll be helpful for their cricket. But I, I think, yeah, it's interesting to look at, as you said, who's put their hand up and kind of who they might be hosting alongside because most of these countries wouldn't have the facilities to run a whole event by themselves. So, you, you would imagine Namibia uh, probably looking at co-hosting with South Africa, potentially Zimbabwe as well. Scotland and Ireland had a very successful T20 World Cup qualifier in 2014. Uh, so, there's no reason why they couldn't do it again. USA has talked in the past about doing a co-bid with the West Indies. Uh, Oman, they're obviously currently slated to host the um, T20 World Cup this year. And UAE, like Tim said last week, you know, they're, <laughs> they're sort of almost not viewed as an associate in a lot of ways because they have such good facilities. And yeah, Malaysia, very interesting. I, I don't know who they would be co-hosting with because they're sort of a bit geographically isolated from, from most of their full member neighbours. There's, uh, you know, Australia's kind of close and... You know, the subcontinent, sort of a five-hour flight, I think, to Bangladesh, and it's about a sort of seven- or eight-hour flight from Kuala Lumpur to, to Sydney. So, I don't know which one of those would um, really work. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, yeah, interesting to see where it goes. The Netherlands, as you said, not putting a bid forward. And, we, uh, you know, I, I've um, emailed the KNCB about that, and the, the response was that they felt they didn't have the facilities at this stage to host the event, which I thought was an interesting line to take because they you know they, they mentioned that they have five grounds with ODI status which is more than uh, most of the countries putting their hands up so clearly they're not thinking of um, co-hosting they're thinking of going it alone which again you know you, you look at something like the 99 World Cup where Netherlands hosted a game Scotland hosted a game Ireland hosted a game why not do something like that again? You know, you could easily have a, a T20 World Cup where all of those countries host a couple of games um, and do it alongside England, or even they could just do it by themselves without England. Between them, they would have enough facilities. So, yeah, it's it, it's interesting uh, to see where this might play out. Um, whether any of these countries actually are granted any matches would, would also, I don't know, <laughs> we've seen in the last kind of cycle, uh, most of the hosting rights have more or less just rotated between the big three of Australia, India and England. So hopefully we can break away from that at least. Playing on there about, about the Netherlands, you'd think you'd want to be jumping up and down. And considering the triumvirate of Netherlands, Ireland, Scotland with the uh, the Euro Slam and the uh, ensuing tri-series when the Slam's been, been cancelled, you think they might have got their heads together as well to put a joint bid in. But you're right, 2014 was a, was a great event. I know we've talked about that a lot. And I am hoping that there are a lot of associates on full member tickets as sort of a bit of a unity ticket that will perhaps have a lot more weight behind it rather than just an associate. You know, likewise in, in South Africa, I mean, Southern Africa, you know, we haven't seen them host a global event for uh, for over a decade. And, and perhaps if they have Zimbabwe and, and Namibia together, they might have more of a chance, you think, of... Uh, of winning winning an event so i think there's a few different ways of of looking at it but yeah interesting about 
Malaysia as well. You know, they've hosted things like the, the Commonwealth Games and I think they've done under-19 World Cup as well, haven't they? And a couple of global qualifiers. So I guess it's the next, next step up. But whether they were hand-in-hand hand with Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, who, who knows? But I guess this will all come out of the wash. And likewise with, with women's events, because these are only men's events we're, we're, we're talking about here. There's a whole other process to see who's going to put their hands up for women's tournaments too. Yeah, in that email from Roland Lefebvre, he, um, he mentioned that they were looking at hosting women's or under-19s events. So... That's a possibility, I guess, in the future. Um, you would imagine they would view that as a sort of stepping stone to hopefully hosting something bigger in the future. But uh, yeah, again, with the Netherlands looking to make an application for full membership within the next decade, you know, hosting a major event is is um, you know would would be part of that application, I imagine. So yeah, you know, you'd think they they might have um, put a bit more effort into trying to do a joint bid. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Interested to see how the USA go about it, most likely in that team up with the West Indies, whether they want to have it sooner rather than later, try and galvanize American cricket that way by having it sooner or making sure that their ducks are in order and hosting at the back end of the cycle. But, I mean, geographically, you can easily see a number of marriages that are that are being made here in a lot of these bids, but it would also sort of beg the question of how these associate members are actually working together with their full member counterparts. I look at, say, uh, a Southern African bid and Zimbabwe, Namibia and South Africa, whether or not Namibia want to team up with Zimbabwe on top of the original plan with South Africa or whether or not they want to just go with South Africa in, in terms of all that. It's a very fascinating concept. And I'm sure there's a lot of tug of war in terms of, you know, who wants to hold which events where and at what time. A lot of these members need to kind of communicate with each other in, in terms of, of how they go about it. And then also to, to look further ahead as to how much power and how many of the tournaments the big three are kind of willing to give up because we we know that they're probably going to have the aces here in terms of how they're going to divide the tournaments up and i know this is you know just the the start of all of it and there's further processes in november and december later in the year but it it is a fascinating time and and if we get to see more more associate members host global events like we will this year at the t20 world cup given the circumstances i i think it's only good for the game Some international associate cricket that is going on. Two series that have just begun in Europe. The men of Belgium take on Malta in a T20i series. And on the women's side of things, France taking on Germany. Both of those series being broadcast by our friends at the European Cricket Network and being broadcast live on our Facebook page via them as well. So make sure to check them out as soon as they go live. And we'll have some news in regards to minor and major league cricket in the USA next week with a lot of things happening over there. For now, we're pushing Tim out of the studio once again to chat to his boss, Mark Stafford of the Vanuatu Cricket Association. Hello, I'm Norman Vanuatu. I play for PNG. I am a bowling all-rounder and you're listening to the Imagine Cricket Podcast. The Pacific Games is, is an interesting one. We really enjoy the, the cricket side of things coming out of that because it brings new life that's a little bit different to, say, the East Asia Pacific qualifications. It's it's a little bit different um, sometimes, you know, mostly held on the synthetic surfaces. But to, to link that to the VCG and the hybrid surface there, I'm assuming that you played a, a part in, in how that was, was made up and how that was developed Tell us all about that because it's it's certainly something that a lot of associate members could possibly look into in, in the future, having a, a hybrid surface that moves away from the synthetic even if the, the turf facilities can't exactly be met. 
There were particular circumstances drove us into this position. We've always hungered after a turf uh, wicket. However, if you vi- visit uh, VCG, our, the home of uh, Vanuatu cricket, you'll find that there's a, we have a whole lot of friends who dig holes in the ground all the time and uh, we just couldn't do the crabs um, that we just couldn't contemplate. So when we, uh, we built a, tra- a set of uh, training nets, which were due, scheduled to be op- opened on the day that Cyclone Pam hit us in 2015 with uh, Gabba grass. And uh, we, we got to know the, the guys at Gabba grass well. And Shane Dietz looked into the hybrid pitch concept, which I think is, is a, there were a few in uh, Dubai in the ICC area there. And we thought that we'd give it a go looked at the cost of it, it was not cheap. You'd be amazed at how much dirt costs uh, to import. Uh, but uh, it, it is something we, we, we set down. And the hybrid pitch basically is set on a, a concrete slab with a, a, a mat that uh, has some strands of, of grass-like strands and you, and you put the, the dirt over the top of it. And then you tease the, the grass up and then you just treat it like a normal turf pitch. You roll it. To make it harder, you roll a bit less to make it a little bit more crumbly. You leave the sun on it more more than not. So it's been a fantastic uh, outcome. It does play variable from time to time. But for relatively inexpensive cost, it's something like $20,000, I think, I think you, you get a surface that gives, provides you variety, provides an opportunity to, to lose the fear of turf for our senior players when they have to go and uh, play, play in different uh, places around the world. And uh, it also provides us with something that we can offer to outsiders to come in and get a, get a reasonable facsimile of, of, of a turf wicket. So we're really pleased with that. And, and the, the real praise for that, I, I supported it, but I didn't think of it. it was, that was Shane's, Shane Dietz's idea. And uh, we think that's a, a really good legacy from, from the time that he spent with us. And, uh, you know, we forgot the guys, uh, some of the senior players who, who are our employees, who are responsible for the maintenance of it. And uh, it's something that if we build another ground, which is difficult because we don't have access to land and then the land's a big issue of, uh, in, in Vanuatu with, uh, with custom ownership and, and, and the like. But uh, if we get some, some space to build another ground, either in, in Vila or even outside, I think we'd, we'd always try and fit a hybrid pitch together with a, with a synthetic uh, wicket. Just on facilities and access to facilities in Vanuatu, you know, you mentioned a couple of grounds around the Port Vila region. Uh, I'm just thinking of PNG and their, you know, project to build a number of facilities around the country. I think it was about 50 astroturf pitches. And, and so is there anything afoot in Vanuatu along similar lines, you know, to, to improve access to just a basic ground? Because, you know, it doesn't have to be a hybrid or a full turf pitch, but just having that astroturf really makes a big difference compared with, you know, playing on an empty field. Uh, we're always looking for opportunities and, and it's, it comes to question of funding. It comes to a question of, of finding space. I was talking to somebody just the other day from the Mallee Village, which is our biggest nursery for, for cricket people. We tried to play on a flicks pitch out there once uh, a few years ago. <laughs> it was a bit of a disaster because we, we just put the flicks pitch on top of, of grass and it didn't, it didn't get anchored very well. But these guys are now responsible for that, for their playing area and thinking of twisting the, twisting the soccer pitches 
to build have two soccer pitches side by side with a section in the middle where we can put a cricket pitch, which uh, anybody who's come from uh, from Australia would would understand. So that's a possibility. I've got a ground in Santo, which uh, one of these days we'll probably lose half of it because we know that there there are titles over it, and then the banks are going to uh, take take control as mortgages and possession. That so we need to find somewhere else. And we're always looking. There's a place up there, another school, but it's a French. It's a francophone school, so we've got to convince him that uh, cricket's good. <laughs> I'd love, I'd love, I'd love not, not as a permanent thing, but I love, I'd love the opportunity to have a little tournament on the uh, ash plain at uh, in, in Tanna, uh, below Mount Yasser volcano. I think that would be a wonderful promotional tool. We might be able to harden up the ash with a, with a bit of bit of rolling, <laughs> so we so we just have a very very crumbly type of surface and uh, develop our spinners a bit. It's a very surreal place, Mount Yasser. As you're driving up towards towards the volcano, it's just so the space is so vast. There's nothing for miles and miles. You can see the volcano from it'd have to be hundreds of kilometers away. Just it's oh, it's a it's a very surreal place to be. Do encourage anyone to to get out there once they do get the opportunity. Sorry. Sorry, Nick, carry on. I'm just self-indulging here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking at some photos uh, of, of the volcano. It looks a bit like Mordor from Lord of the Rings. Um, I just You mentioned the soccer fields there, Mark, and, and soccer is obviously the dominant sport in Vanuatu, and you also talked about you know, competing for attention with with a range of things. Uh, where does cricket fit into that, and, and how, do you, you know, how does cricket try and compete with soccer or, or you know, win people over? Firstly, I think we compete with soccer. I think we we run parallel to a certain degree. And I would always personally think if we, if we can get young kids to play a multitude of sports when they're growing up, it would be fantastic. I know I did, and uh, it's uh, it's important to, to me. It's important to to give, let them have a try and find out what they like the best, and uh, not necessarily what they're best at, but what they like the best. We don't have too many issues at all with with the Vanuatu soccer. Soccer is much easier to play than than, than cricket. All you need is a, a ball and two sticks to represent a goal and uh, any sort of area that could be 50 metres long, it could be 20 metres long and you can play soccer and have a meaningful outcome. It's a bit more complicated with the cricket with the equipment that you require and the money it costs to get the equipment. But uh, we've tried to eliminate the cost element by being a provider of equipment through Vanuatu cricket. And the other issue that we face is that we have an 11-month season we played cricket in one form or another throughout the country for about the same time that they play soccer so the kids or the young men and young women have to make a choice i've got a couple of uh, our national women's captain and uh, and a couple of others are now playing soccer if, if they're not playing cricket on a saturday afternoon or maybe after they've played on a saturday morning and that's fine as long as they don't break their legs, I'm, I'm happy to see them have a have a crack because it also cross pollinates the sports. So you talk, they'll be talking to the girls they're playing with at the soccer the soccer thing and say, "Have a go with it with us down on, on in the mornings or the, when you're not playing soccer." So that's a real good thing. And our men, we, we have a pretty good discussion amongst the top sportsmen about uh, different things. And in fact, we've got lots of families that uh, in either sport, and that's important too. And our assistant coach and coach of the under 19s is a dual international soccer and cricket, Eddie Mansali. So he, he had the chance to try both and, and enjoy both. Played cricket as he was a bit older after he played soccer. It is really important to, to kind of expose yourself as a, as a kid by playing multiple sports. I think the life lessons that both 
cricket and, and, and soccer have, can bring can certainly help. And then there's so many motor skills, uh, physical skills, but also, you know, the idea of teamwork and, and understanding what it's like to be in a, in a team. I think, you know, they're both mutually beneficial. Looking at, at your role, not only for Vanuatu, to go maybe a little bit further abroad uh, as one of the associate member representatives of the ISCC's uh, chief executives committee, what's it kind of been like to, to almost represent Vanuatu and all the other associate members on the world stage? How important is that in, in maintaining the, I suppose, the charge of, of associate members in, in their growth in the game? My, my history goes back a fair bit on those ICC committees. I first sat on the development committee in 2002, uh, representing the region. It was a different structure then. And then from uh, 2005, when the, the affiliates got a vote, albeit only a, a regional representative vote, then I was a global chair of the affiliate member countries for until we became an associate. That was from 2005 to 2009. That put me into the development committee. And I still see now as a representative of Chief Executives Committee and the Development Committee that the Development Committee has got the most influence over the associate member countries. The Chief Executives Committee, as you've seen over recent months, has, has taken some good and, and positive recommendations regarding participation at the at the World Cups, increasing the number of participants or going back to a, to a high number of participants. Some would say that there was a bit of a regression for a few years when the big three were going around. So, but, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's important that at that representation level that we un- understand that we represent 93 countries from Falklands uh, to Scotland and, uh, and Netherlands and that, you know. And I, we have to consider the impact of our decisions on everybody. And, and certainly meritocracy says that you earn what your rewards are. So there is a difference. There's a significant difference between the Falklands and Scotland. And Scotland have earned, earned what they're getting at the present time and they may not think they're getting enough. And we will try and get more for them and where we can and within the constraints that we are under. And we as the associate members sacrificed a lot to see Ireland and Afghanistan become full members. The the fact that that the associates paid for their transition, so everybody else paid for their their transition to the whatever club you want to call it. The promised land. Yeah. (laughs) So so it's difficult to ensure that everybody gets what they want, but you push as hard as you possibly can. And and, then I can tell you that the Chief Executives Committee, our voice is a whisper. But uh, we, we try and whisper as often as we can to encourage the recognition of the associates who are knocking on the door at, at that level. Most of the decisions taken at, at chief executives uh, have a significant um, role to play within the full how, how frustrating is it to see, you know, certain full members um, getting, you know, the lion's share of the ICC's disbursements while, you know, you guys are struggling to get batting tees for your for your coaching clinics and and you know that's not the only story you know all the way down the um you know the lists of the associate members it's just the same thing over and over again you know people struggling to get you know just the most basic equipment and yeah the the it's not the money isn't there it's just distributed uh, in a way that um, is, is less than equal I guess that you go to Animal Farm <laughs> and uh, and think about uh, four legs good and two be- legs better. We're all as equal as we can be. Um, it's a frustrating, yes, it's frustrating, but you've got to learn to have patience to try and knock over small uh, castles before you get to the big one. There's a thing that Malcolm Speed 
the former CEO of, uh, of the IC said to me once about, you don't ever let it go. If you, if you drop something off the agenda, then it's probably gone forever. It's very difficult to bring it back. So you try and maintain the agenda and just chip away and get what you can. And then one day you'll probably get to a position where one of those bigger castles is just on the last plinth and it'll fall over and you'll, and you'll be able to grab something. Well, maintaining the agenda, we're coming up to, to elections again in terms of, of the ICC and the Chief Executive's Committee. What are your plans for being that associate voice in, in the years to come in that committee? I suppose you'd like to say I'll stand on my record and I stood for election previously and I didn't electioneer. I didn't. I, I felt that politics was something I didn't like much, but I understand now that you must get out there and speak to people and to be able to influence them to uh, support you. Uh, I, I think, well, I, I know I've uh, got a good record going back to that period as the global chairman of the affiliates. We worked hard to lose the distinction between associates and affiliates, which happened a couple of years ago. Um, I'm still not satisfied with the current structure. We had the non-voting associates. It, it means we've only come a very small way from where we were before, and I'd like to see that non-voting associates uh, group be just embraced as a part of the team without any restriction, and that would be the next step in, in getting to a, a more egalitarian uh, ICC, uh, whereby we only had one membership line and like most other sports in the world and most other major sports in the world still that patience thing that we, we can only work slowly towards it doesn't mean that then you divide cut the pie up in 105 equal slices you've got to be re realistic and pragmatic about where the money comes from and if we excluded india from that then we'd be in big strife so that that would be part of the thing that I want to see continue. Personally, I want to see a perhaps a wider pathway for all of the associate members in in the, towards global events. Still only going to get sixteen in the World Cup or twenty in the World Cup. You know, still only get sixteen in the T Twenty World Cup. You may get a couple more, but it's very logistically tough, and we've got to understand that. But it, if say go back to the Falklands, the Falklands gets to gets to put a team into a, a regional pathway event. That's a first step, okay. And uh, so that the meritocracy, uh, you know, people have got to earn the rewards. As I said before, the benefits come to those who, who put in the effort and the dedication to to get to where they are. Lots of have head starts, and you can't do much about that. But bring it back, and there's that point I made about with with the Cricket Australia. Why can't we have a kids program that's global, funded globally, not just funded out of the associates thing? Why can't we have a kids program that's global? Uh, again, there might be there be there will be some countries that, that you know that, that miss out after the first tournament because they won't go forward. But it's a first step, and you've got kids paying attention to the opportunity. And that's the, that's the most important part of the whole thing is kids getting an opportunity. And it, it doesn't mean that we can't have the parachuted people coming in because that seems to be a, a path that we've travelled and it's going to be hard to turn it back. But if you have more kids coming through at the young ages, then every cricket country in the world is going to improve. You, you're going to have better... You talk, we talk about uh, fan engagement. That was a big catch cry in the last couple of years. With Manu, fan engagement is is important, but don't let it just be the fans in America or the fans in China or the fans in high population countries. We get fan engagement where they double the number of people involved. If it's only from a hundred to two hundred in the first step, that's the important part of of any development program. Don't forget about the little guy, and that's where I think uh, you know, as well as remembering 
the big guys, don't forget about the little guy. Yeah, and I've made this point on the podcast a few times, but, you know, you, you think of little teams like Iceland in, in football and, you know, their population's only, only a bit bigger than Vanuatu, but them being in tournaments has added value for FIFA and I mean financial value because people enjoy watching their matches and you know they'll they'll take the time because you know they like the chance and the clapping and you know they like seeing them pull upsets and so they actually are not a drag financially on the tournament even though they have a tiny you know home population TV revenue yeah exactly um I mean, I assume you've got the Faroe Islands that nobody's ever heard of apart from uh, World Cup eliminations, and that's where we should be proud to see uh, little countries have, having a crack. I mean, you don't always get the chance, and, you, and when you do get the chance, it's, it's, as long as you participate, you might get flogged, but come back next time and get flogged a, a little less as, as you progress. Well, American Samoa are sort of a classic example of that, aren't they? You know, <laughs> their football team has improved a lot since they lost to Australia by, you know, 32 nil or whatever it was. The 31, yeah. Oh, th- 31, right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Ar- Archie scored 13 of, of his 28 Socceroos goals in one game. But anyway, that's another story for another day on another podcast. <laughs> Um, back to cricket, though, and you know, you mentioned the distinction between associates and affiliates being removed, or you know, at least on paper. And, and there's an argument to be made, though, that that makes it harder for new members to come in because the requirements for an affiliate, as opposed to an associate, are a lot less stringent in terms of you know, facilities and number of players and, and all of that. So, you know, how do you balance that in terms of making life? better for the existing associates or ex-affiliates and you know, making it easier for people to try and actually join the family in the ICC. I'm appalled that we've stalled uh, adding new members and going seeking new members at, uh, over the last five years. I've got a number of correspondents that, that, that write to me. Maybe one bloke with a whole lot of different names because they come in the same form. The constant and persistent use of the yellow, yellow highlighter sort of brings them together. But they could put up the proposition not so long ago in the last month or so that maybe we should say welcome we're going to look at you for seven years and if you if you don't we don't see any progression then we'll either suspend you send you back or find a way to to get you across the hurdles that makes you an ICC member country we shouldn't have any barriers to entry as long as they're keen enough to put up a cricket team or half a dozen cricket team or three or four cricket teams for a domestic competition they don't have to go onto the pathway events. You can choose to do that or not. You won't get much money to start with. You've got to be clear about that. But I can remember when I first got involved at the ICC level that uh, the associate members got $40,000 a year. Everybody got the same. And the affiliates got $5,000 a year. Well, we've come a, a, a long way from there. But that was where, where it was in 1999 or 2000. And the, some of the associate members could still afford to send two delegates to the ICC annual meeting. That was something that came across to me as, as quite uh, weird. Because <laughs> all of the discussions, as, as you will appreciate, is about money. Or has been lots of the discussions about money. And, and it still is. But money is, is a necessary uh, driver of, of uh, opportunities to, to, to progress. And whether you can raise it by your own efforts at home or you rely almost entirely upon the ICC for distribution, it's uh, one way or the other. You need to go and find funds to help the little kids play, help to help your elite teams play, and to move into programs that have social impact. And on the idea of revenue streams, I'm guessing at, at your end, there needs to be a multi-pronged effort, not only receiving that ICC funding, but working in such a way from a VCA point of view for you of actually between the sponsors and between, you know, 
investors coming in and helping out. There needs to be that multi-pronged approach of generating income to be more than self-sustainable. And we've seen that through the blast, not only with Vanuatu's cricket sponsors that that we see around, but also having betting agencies endorse the blast or sponsor the blast and, and other tournaments of that ilk. How important is it to, to generate a good proportion of your income also from building on your own internal and external sponsors as opposed to just relying on that ICC funding? Oh, very important. Uh, here in Vanuatu, I've, I've been very lucky. I've had people who are basically benefactors who've uh, been happy to provide funds because of the work and the effort and success that we've had. I've got a couple of people who happen to be my business clients from a country where cricket's not part of it, but they've been successful and they've been happy to support this development of our game through our initiatives in Vanuatu. We've been lucky there. But we've also been lucky that the established commercial partners that we do have find that they get good value for their investment. We've gone a long long way past just a handshake. Thank you, you're doing a great job. Here's some money. Uh, we have to give them value for their investment now. Um, and we do that by being great uh, citizens of the community. Uh, we do that by showing success on the field as well as off the field. And I'm not uh, silly enough to think that if, we, if, we, if we're still ranked at uh, number 99 in the world, which I think we probably were at one stage, and not number 29 in the world in the, in the men's competition, we wouldn't get the same support. So we're very thankful we've got naturally gifted athletes who have applied themselves and, and, and become you know, top-line players, and, and a few of them could... Uh, play in a lot higher competition than we do at the present time. Uh, so we've got that opportunity because of the success that we've achieved over many years. And, and lots of, it doesn't all come easily, I can tell you that. Just on the, uh, the the T10 that Bez mentioned there, I'm interested in you know where you see that fitting in for Vanuatu because you know there's been some rumblings around um, you know the idea of international T10 and whether it should go to the Olympics as the, the preferred format. And obviously the blast was a, a big success for Vanuatu, but you know there are also question marks around it in, in some ways. So I'm just interested in uh, you know w- what Vanuatu's approach to the format is. T10 is. It's handy because we've only got a couple of rounds and we can play three or four games a day instead of two, two, two matches on each pitch. Uh, so from a, we're in, in our position in Vanuatu where we're challenged for facilities, it, it's, it's an opportunity to get more people to have a, to have a crack and have some fun. In, in my sort of uh, older perspectives as a proper cricketer, I'm not so sure, <laughs> but it creates opportunities for kids to have fun. It creates opportunities for them to develop different skills that, that are particularly effective at, at, at that level. There's a lot of talk, a lot of push in the in the wider community for T10 to, to be the, the new panacea for making cricket popular. That, to me, is not the case. You know, I get people, same bloke with a yellow highlighter, telling me that you've got to get cricket as the, uh, as the Olympic uh, format. Well, unfortunately, they don't understand that the Olympics, the IOC, uh, it's not about the time it takes for, for a match and how many matches you can fit in. It's the number of people that they will allow into the village. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, you know, We're not going to double the number of teams in the Olympics. It'll be eight. It won't get any bigger than eight for men and women because there's a limit and they don't want to see it grow any bigger than it already is. And they'd rather like to see it uh, contract a little bit. Cricket, I, the ICC is working hard to get cricket accepted as a as an invitation sport to Los Angeles 2028. And we would we would suspect that that would flow into uh, Brisbane 2032. 
and who knows after that yeah he's hoping yeah and then the ioc wants the, the uh, asian subcontinent they want the indians with their 1.3 billion viewers to be part of the people who tune in uh, to the to the olympics if they only want to watch cricket they will but then i also see the highlights of the swimming the athletics the soccer the hockey the basketball the rhythmic gymnastics and the, the underwater uh, dancing in the in the swimming pool they like to find a reason to put it in you know, are we going to knock off skateboarding or uh, breaking? Is it breaking? <laughs> break, yeah, break dancing, yeah. To ensure that Vanuatu cricket gets a little bit of the uh, IOC pie, we're going to become the Vanuatu Cricket and Breaking uh, Association. <laughs> well, well, I'd sure like to see Tim pulling some moves. Oh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't get up. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, I dare say Patrick Matatava would have more flow than than Tim Cutler. Unfortunately for Tim. Yes, yes, but uh, they'd be choreographed by teacup. <laughs> <laughs> not, yeah, I don't think they've got baggy, baggy long shorts that uh, would uh, fit him. <laughs> not politely, anyway. <laughs> oh. So one of the questions that we ask every single guest here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast is that if you could change a law of cricket, what would it be and why? Now, I've put you onto this with no real notice, so have a little bit of time to, to think about this one. Unless you've got one locked up in the chamber because you might have got some mail from a certain third member of the Emerging Cricket podcast. No, this is that does come out of the blue. It was interesting. I was watching an interview of a, a lady player that said that uh, as a batter, she wanted three chances. Oh, Sarah Watoto in our interview, yes. I thought that was innovative, but I didn't quite agree with it. Uh, if I could change a, a law... Of cricket now, first one I would change: anybody over sixty who touches the ball automatically gets given an out court. Yeah, okay. So if a fielder over the age of sixty touches a ball in the air, it's automatically given out as caught. Oh yeah, sort of like a handicap in golf. So that's a selfish one. Yeah, I like. So it. I was playing the other the last last year. I was playing. I felt like one of those cardboard cutouts in the COVID nineteen <laughs> era. Of but uh, I, but serious, seriously, I think that we should be able to enjoy the game without the interference of the umpires. No, no umpires at all. And how would that be achieved? An honour system. You could call it the Adam Gilchrist innovation, um, whereby you nick it, you know you're out, go. If you, if you know you've stepped over, then call yourself a no ball. If you know you're chucking, leave the ground. <laughs> Talk about bringing, bringing the game into disrepute, and I think the, the biggest thing that we've had in recent years is the people who knowingly cheat. And I don't know how you change the rules of that. And then and when, when you see somebody be given out after a, a DRS, as a, as a batter, I know I knew every time I snicked the ball. And these guys just will sit and wait because there's technology. It's, it's, it, they might be able to get away with it. To me, that's a form of you know, lack of integrity in the game. So I don't know if you can change a rule to make the game have more integrity that would be what i would do so we had norman vanua trying to abolish spin bowling and uh today we've got mark stafford saying that uh, we we should do away with umpires because you wouldn't need them with integrity if every club cricketer was like adam gilchrist club cricket would be a very harmonious place <laughs> yeah. well i don't think we've had that particular law change request so i'm very glad that after over a hundred shows we've had something completely new mark stafford Thank you so much for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Good luck with everything in, in terms of Vanuatu cricket and cricket on the global stage through your role at the ICC. Everything looks to be well in order in whatever you're doing at the moment. So once again, keep on doing what you're doing and uh, make sure you keep uh, young Tim in, in order. We don't want, don't want him getting uh, ahead too big. 
Yes, well, before I, before I sign off, I will be doing my best to keep young Tim in order. I hope that, I hope that he starts and shows a little bit on the field, and uh, but a lot, a lot behind the desk. And thank you very much. A huge thank you again to Mark Stafford for joining us on the show. That's all the time we have for this week. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already, so you can tune in as soon as it drops every week. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket, where you can support us from as little as two US dollars a month. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Culler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.